You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Nick Bolters and I, Niels Kastor-Larsen, where we each week take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, I hope today's episode will pique your interest and encourage you to explore our back catalogue, including my conversation with Andrew last week, where we discussed some of the recent challenges that his CTA replication strategy has faced and what surprised him about this recent period. Also, I would encourage you to listen to the midweek episode where Stephen Roach, former chief economist at Morgan Stanley and senior fellow at Yale, discussed the China-US relationship and his new book, Accidental Conflict, and where he offers a path towards healthier economies and insights on how to repair the current quote-unquote rocky relationship. And lastly, I am excited to invite you to enjoy the mini CTA series that I've done with Alan, where we speak to the top decision makers at the largest CTAs in the world, so that you can gain unique access to these industry leaders who share valuable insights on pressing topics in the CTA space. So head over and check them out after you're done listening to myself and Nick today. Nick, it is wonderful to have you back this week. It's been a little while. Um, how are you doing this Friday in April? I'm doing well, Niels. It's, it's good to be back. Um, I'm doing well. So, you know, post-Easter, uh, you know, it's a less um, travel-heavy schedule on my side. Uh, you know, spending time doing some research projects, I, I think some of them, um, you know, we're going to touch upon. Um, you know, other than that, um, you know, life is good. How about you? Fantastic. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I th- I think we both concluded recently trips to Asia and coming back from that. So our body clocks are getting uh, back to normal. And, uh, you know, as, as wonderful it is to uh, be out there, it's also quite nice to be uh, back home for sure. We've got uh, a pretty exciting lineup because again, this week, uh, and because of your kind of unique insights to what we do, we're going to tackle some issues that we normally don't. And also from a academic point of view. So I'm very much looking forward to that. Now, normally at this stage, Nick, I would, of course, come up with some kind of brief market wrap, but I thought, ah, it's Nick, let's do something different. And what I thought was just to quickly look at some of the news flashes that I've uh, sort of noticed this week um, and just hear your thoughts on at least some of the topics. I actually think some of the topics don't even require much of a comment. But the first one might actually because, um, I hope you're up for this, Nick. Is that okay with you? Why not? Let's go for it. Why not? Let's go for it. Exactly. So the first one comes to us from Bank of America. Um, And if I should summarize uh, what I read, it would be something like investor allocation to equities relative to bonds has reached its lowest level since the global financial crisis, driven by concerns about the possible recession. According to Bank of America's global fund manager survey, bond allocation has risen to a net 10% overweight, the highest level since March 2009, with 63% of participants expecting a weaker economy. However, the bearish sentiments could be contrarian signal for risk assets, with some strategies suggesting that if recession fears are not realized, bond yields and bank stocks could rally. So I'm kind of curious to hear when you speak, because you speak to a lot of institutional investors, if 
if this kind of overweight a bond and this these thoughts about asset allocation at this point in time is something that you sense that many of the people you speak to are also doing at the moment. I would possibly comment on this one from a slightly different angle. That being, um, you know, what is the short-term forecast? You know, obviously, it's very hard to foresee uh, what's going to happen. But there seems to be a number of indicators suggesting that you know a slowdown is more likely than not. Um, you know, possibly towards the later part of the year um, than in the very short term. Um, and in this context, uh, obviously, the question about being uh, slightly more defensive and risk-off pops up. Um, and then the question along the lines of, you know, is now, um, you know, a fixed income allocation, um, you know, my long-term kind of defensive play, um, setting aside last year, um, you know, going to save, uh, you know, the case or or not. But having said that, I think the fixed income allocations have, you know, have seen some form of, um, I guess, of increased uh, allocation appetite. You know, conscious, however, of the of the, you know, substantially high, and I think you have commented on this um, on this show. Um, interest rate volatility we have experienced in, in in March. I think any 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 move that we see from the investor side is, um, I would say, relatively more balanced. Uh, but I have to say um, that following March, and I think I think last time we were here uh, was before the um, the interest rate spike in March. Um, you know, the beginning of the year was much more on the kind of soft landing kind of scenario, being the more prevalent one. And in this regard, it was more of a mild risk on type of appetite, I would say post that event, uh, it is kind of balancing out income seeking strategies versus a bit more, um, you know, defensive, if you like. Yeah, I mean, I think the reaction, because I I see it as well, I have it certainly in my conversations, uh, for sure, uh, that investors are suddenly becoming much more interested in, in, in fixed income again. But from my observations, it's just this thing that, yeah, this is a very rational thing to do. If suddenly you can get 5% on a one or two year uh, duration, that makes sense. But the only thing I would caveat that with, and that is, I think a lot of these people are basing it on what's been going on for the last 20, 30, 40 years, where we have had in this tailwind when it came to lower interest rate, meaning the interest rate cycle, the 40 years people talk about, was there. But on the other hand, if the 40-year interest rate cycle uh, flipped a couple of years ago and we're now in in, in the, the other part of the cycle, which is interest rates hitting higher for a very long time, then these normal reaction patterns are not going to play out necessarily as well as investors are hoping for. Um, so to me, it is quite interesting because I think a lot of people who are doing this their portfolios are not necessarily in great shape after last year. Certainly in the pension fund industry, uh, we saw huge losses. So if they're again jumping into something that looks like, oh, now is a great time to own a lot of fixed income, you know, the next set of pain can be much worse than what we see now. And I still think, even though we don't have to go down that route, I still think that the pension fund system is something that uh, I worry a little bit about uh, at this stage. I, I, would, I, would, I would not disagree with this view. I wouldn't disagree with this view. Well, shifting to some other very exciting news, uh, Nick. Uh, this week we learned that the famed investor, uh, also known as Taylor Swift, knows a lot about due diligence compared to many of the Wall Street pros. As it turns out, she asked a very simple question when FTX were offering her about $100 million in sponsorship. And she simply asked, can you tell me that these are not unregistered securities? So, you know, good due diligence really does matter. And after all, having multi-talents can keep you out of trouble. So I'm not sure you have much of a comment to that, but I thought it was an interesting 
piece of news that came out this I week. I didn't um, see it. I didn't see it. So that's you know, that's the first time okay. I'm, I'm I'm hearing that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, let's go to more serious <laughs> matters, because just as I was preparing for our conversation, we had in the U.S. Uh, the latest news from the conference board leading in. The, Leading economic uh, index, which measures the U.S. business cycle, that unexpectedly dropped sharply to its lowest level since 2020, and it's the 12th consecutive monthly decline, the longest run since the period 2007 to 2009. Not the most positive uh, precedent, of course, yet we still have the CME FedWatch tool showing a nearly 85% chance of a 25 basis points hike next month uh, when they meet in May. And equities are doing fine at the moment. So it's kind of interesting. I think the dynamics we see right now in, in, in the markets that, you know, the numbers are telling us one thing. Um, people are still optimistic when you look at the equity markets. People are, you know, expecting, as we talked about before, recession and lower interest rates and probably not, you know, uh, the best uh, economic environment uh, on the bond side. So what are your sort of big thoughts on on these I mean, it's 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 um, it's fair to say that this year has kind of evolved month on month on month with like different anticipation and different um, you know uh, opposing if you like moves in the equity market. I think you know the year started with kind of um, you know lukewarm um, you know, debate as to you know how the year is going to play out, and then you know January was very strong, and then you know coming into February, you know sentiment turned into more positive, but then equities kind of underperformed, and then March obviously came with a significant uh, you know rate spike. You know, one of the indicators I was mentioning in the beginning is certainly the you know the leading economic indicator. This is one of the few that we're using to monitor uh, the business cycle. And you know, by the way, uh, you know we're using some sort of a you know um, moving average to kind of smooth out those changes month on month, and therefore capture more like an, an evolving regime. Um, but just to give a few kind of data points, since you mentioned this indicator, um, you know, we started last year uh, from memory from a kind of rising growth, rising inflation standpoint. I think towards July, the you know the the moving average in, in you know, on the growth side kind of drifted downwards. You know, as you said, it was like it's the longest period that we have seen that fall. You know, on a moving average basis, that was kind of captured back in July. So from July onwards, it was more of a falling growth, rising inflation, based on some sort of definition of indicators. But ever since November, we're in a falling growth, falling inflation phase. Um, now, in anticipation of another hike, I think. Certainly before the rate spike in March, the anticipation was that the hike could be between 50 and 75 basis points. And I think what happened during that week of uh, you know, banking sector turmoil, uh, at least softly, can be seen as an implicit hike. And, and that was the time, I believe, that you know, there was consensus for these 25 basis points we saw, but I think the range was pretty wide between minus 50 and plus 50 or something along those lines. So there's the significant amount of debate, and I think the asset class movements we're seeing, I think are partly driven by short-term flows rather than strategic allocations. That's my assessment. I, I don't have obviously hard data to support that, uh, but that's that's how I perceive uh, you know, the short-term moves. Okay, I mean, that's pretty interesting. The final thing I wanted to bring up with you just to round things off before we dive into all of our own topics, so to speak, it's just also kind of related to what's going on in the bond markets um, because I read another article this uh, this morning um, saying the bond market is starting to signal concern about the debt ceiling as traders are swooping in on the one-month Treasury bill because of growing concerns about Washington's standoff over the government's debt ceiling, briefly pushing its rate down by more than half a percentage point 
on Thursday, which was yesterday, which I completely missed myself, but... Likewise, actually. I mean, volatility in, in short in short-term fixed income is very interesting. It's very liquid, yeah. I don't know. I, yeah, I mean, do you do you have? I mean, you cover a lot of different strategies. Do you actually cover strategies that specifically operate in that area as well? So you mean the short-term interest rate? Yeah, sure. I mean, just volatility or short-term interest rates, or is it more broadly? No, we do. You know, we, we, we do have some activity on the volatility side as well. Um, you know, and and we certainly look here now into more relative value type of dynamics in the present market environment. Um, in other words, looking into you know which market, and, um, and we're not just talking about which market in which asset class, but also which asset classes um, you know are priced uh, expensively, which are priced relatively less expensive, and therefore looking into some sort of relative value dynamics. I think the equity rates. Um, uh, interplay in the present moment is quite quite interesting. Uh, with you know, with your point, significantly elevated on the interest rate side, um, not as much on the equity side. I mean, if anything, VIX is now uh, pretty low levels, right? So yeah, this is something we're looking at, and this is something you know we try to you know harvest systematically while at the same time highlight some sort of tactical entry points. And I think this is probably a a uh, an interesting one. Um, all right, so before we do uh, our little uh, quick update on trend, I wanted to touch on the topic of trend and CTA because um, as you were, uh, as you as we talked about a little bit last time when we were just getting going with our initial publication of the episodes we have with these uh, you know wonderful uh, wise people from the CTA industry. And so I was curious uh, now after a few weeks and we've published most of the ones that we wanted to publish. We've got a few more. I'm sure we'll we'll do uh, some uh, on occasion, but not at the same rate. And I know you probably haven't listened to, to all of them, but what you have heard so far, are there some things that have kind of stood out to you, um, maybe surprised you a little bit, or maybe something where you thought, well, that's a different way or a new way to talk about certain things that, you know, we obviously talk about a lot. Yes, so I've actually heard to most of them. I don't think there was any anything very surprising, uh, but there's certainly a few things that I would, I would easily highlight. Um, I would start possibly with... Um, I don't know, uh, more of the humorous part. Um, you know, you know when Roy Niederhofer basically said, you know, I started investing in 1981. I'm like, dude, like, that's when I was born. <laughs> <laughs> so it kind of brings a bit of a perspective. Um, but <laughs> I mean, on, on a more serious note, I think, you know, listening to you know to people like Bruno or Roy or 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 Doug, um, you know, obviously focus uh, being on a more traditional liquid trend following, pivoting towards a very short-term, possibly contrarian um, allocations and then towards um, you know, alternative markets. I know what becomes prevalent here is something we I think we've discussed many times and I think you have discussed many times that, you know, it looks that trend following or some form of systematic investing in futures contracts is easy. But then you end up realizing how many nuances are in place, specifically when you try to accommodate either more liquid markets or alternative markets or short-term patterns. So, you know, as easy as it might be, I think there's a lot of art and science going into it and a lot of research going into it. So I think it's pretty much highlighted specifically once you start hearing people that have very different yet related mandates. Um, and, you know, their perspectives were so different but at the same time under the same hood. So that was the second thing that I would kind of point out. Um, 
in terms of philosophy and the way I'm kind of thinking about portfolio construction and, 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 and running a strategy, I think Bruno's points were pretty close to how I think about, um, you know, about trend following. But I have to say the whole discussion he was making about doing relative trends and looking into spread forecast between market A and market B, uh, and therefore allowing them to um, to largely multiply the number of assets they allocate to that not being anymore just the markets but any pair um, it was an interesting idea I, I, I'm still kind of running through my head like what's the value at here uh, and I'm not saying that in bad faith I'm actually saying it in good faith um, and I think the last point I would say um, again kind of closing on another slightly less but possibly uh, still humorous point is that when you asked uh, Bruno, uh, what's the one thing that you hear about trend uh, that you disagree with? Uh, he basically said exactly the same thing that I said two months ago. Uh, he just disagrees with the fact that that trend following is dead and, and, and every now and then people come along excuses about, about its viability. So that, that's a kind of a number of kind of high level points yeah, I wanted yeah. to kind of share. No, I, I appreciate that. When you hear the debate, for example, between funds that trade more liquid developed markets versus funds that have really embraced alternative markets and as you say off exchange difficult to trade etc 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 um how do you think about that uh in 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 your shop i mean do you embrace the idea that we should just trade as many markets doesn't really matter whether they're on exchange off exchange uh and you know that there is some benefit uh, to 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 doing so is or or, or or how do you think about that? So diversification is the key dynamic here uh, in terms of motivation, right? So to the extent that we can believe um, there is some form of uh, trend following, then you know by all means, to the extent we can have assets with enough liquidity, there's a diversification element that comes along. But I just said the most important consideration that being liquidity. And therefore, if inclusion requires a significantly reduced exposure, precisely because liquidity is not high, um, then the marginal gain at scale is very small. So I think it's always a balance between can we scale it up and to the extent we can scale it up, I think diversification will play out. Obviously, the rule of you know, the nth asset that you're adding has consecutively marginally lower contribution to your program. Um, you know, is fair. And I think that's why I could possibly see the value of just focusing on those markets. And I'm, I can possibly call Doug here that says, okay, if I focus on those markets and I don't necessarily blend them with more liquid markets, then possibly at least in that ecosystem, I can have value brought by every element in it. And then I would let the allocators decide upon how much they would allocate into that bucket as opposed to just blending them together on a, on a, on a full look-through basis, kind of bottoms-up allocation. So I can see the benefits on either side or, or if you like the disadvantages of just going into those markets. But, you know, but we certainly look into those markets and we certainly you know, um, you know, looking to deploy you know, um, non-conventional markets. Let, let me put it this way. Yeah. Final point before I jump to the next segment. Because we spoke before the SVB event, I mean, you're obviously sitting in a huge shop uh, uh, each day and... I was wondering how you guys think 
uh, oh, I don't, I don't, uh, I'm not going to ask you to talk for all of all of your your firm, but just kind of you looking at all these markets and and the reaction and so on and so forth. What I'm trying to say here is that we have talked uh, for a while uh, on the podcast about one of the concerns being liquidity, but I think often we think about liquidity from a little uh, our own little niche, saying, "Well, can we buy and sell the futures we want to buy and sell?" But this was, of course, another kind of liquidity event, even though it did spill over to part of our portfolio because clearly the moves in the short-term interest rates and in bonds were big. So there were some slippage, I'm sure, somewhere in the system for for managers, um, without a doubt. But have you thought more about the, not so much whether it was SVB or Credit Suisse or whatever, that's not what I'm trying to say, but just the event itself, what actually took place in the markets, this kind of drying up of, quote-unquote, one form of liquidity so quickly, and what the loss of trust and confidence means to markets. Have this given you any uh, anything where you would go back and say, yeah, we need to revisit some of this stuff because clearly you know, things can move much quicker than maybe anyone thought they, they could. So I, I think my answer would be a bit more generic here in the sense that you know, we're very, very focused on on, on liquidity and execution. Uh, and we're very focused to making sure we deliver uh, strategies that have no market impact, uh, precisely because, you know, our duty, if you like, from an index provider perspective is to make sure that we can, uh, you know, deliver to our, our end clients in the cleanest form whatever the premium is at question, without that having any impact in the market. And therefore, from the design phase, we want to make sure we constrain any trading in markets that are very liquid, but to proportions of daily volume or, or, or daily activity that are in a single digits um, or even smaller. Obviously, when liquidity goes through some phases and therefore you know, we might feel that something is changing the market, we regularly review and possibly we have to go back and rethink how we think about liquidity and utilization. Uh, but if anything, we started from the point of designing strategies that at least on historical basis and also in stress environments, participates too little to even be meaningful. And with that being in mind, you know, we try to evolve our product without having you know, liquidity shocks being dominant in, on our day-to-day. So you know, we, start, we start from a place that we want to hedge against the possibility of you know, having any impact in the first place. And should the market shift, you know, we have to go back over to the drawing board. Yeah. And, and of course, a lot of people will, 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 will be doing that as well. I think for me, what the surprising thing, or what I think might be surprising to some people at least, is that this event kind of happened in the most liquid markets that we trade. So, so it kind of gives you a little bit of a, you know, cause for, for, uh, for real deep yeah. thought. Right, exactly. Because if it can happen there, it can happen anywhere. Uh, anyways, let's not go down that path anymore. Um, quick update on trend. Uh, so far in April, we're kind of a little bit past the halfway mark. mark um, and it's looking pretty solid, I would say. I think this week was uh, okay for trend followers. So far in April, I think it's uh, also doing reasonably well. Um, but interestingly enough, you know, some of the markets have actually done well for at least the trend following systems that I follow are things like sugar. Um, they're having a very strong uh, trend at the moment. Um, and even uh, some of the meats and, you know, some of the grains are doing pretty well. And, of course, 
we know that equities are still finding their way higher. So that's been a, a, a you know beneficial to trend following portfolios at the moment. And for some, at least, depending on time frame, the fact that interest rates have started to go back up again slightly for those who kept their short positions, that also has seemed or seemed to have worked out well. My own trend barometer finished yesterday at 39, so it's still pretty neutral, nothing really to report there. Performance-wise, beta 50 is up about 42 basis points this month, down about three and a quarter for the um, for the year. Socgen CTA up about 1.14%, down 4% for the year. Socgen Trend up 1.7% for the month, down 5.7% for the year. And the Short-Term Traders Index down about 10 basis points uh, for the month and down 2.2% for the year. Equities up for the month a little bit, uh, bonds down for the month a little bit, and that's about it. All right. As usual, I was about to say, Nick, whenever you come on, we get a question from Tim. So Tim is back with a, a question. And so I will do my best to uh, present it to you. Of course. Tim writes, thanks for all the podcasts that you are churning out with an impressive speed and high quality. This week, I have a question relating to timing of trends. Here goes. Trend followers are known for being patient. They know from experience that their backtest that they need to be willing to work through environments where they incur small losses and see drawdowns take place. They do this because they know that ultimately strong trends will emerge and the profit from those trades more than make up for the losses and lead to phases of strong positive performance as we saw in 2022. Most, if not all, trend followers tend to firmly believe that there is no way to time trends. With Nick having a strong research background and perhaps not being 100% trend follower, he might think differently and would no doubt have some valuable insights into this. For example, some concepts that provide constructive results in backtests for timing trends are, one, using the trend strength metrics like Niels's trend barometer, or two, a risk-on, risk-off measure, or three, using some macro variables like inflation. All these approaches can be used to improve on overall results by adjusting the capital allocation depending on the results of the concept used, but they do lack in overall robustness. Of course, position sizing and whether this is done dynamically over time will also impact results. Apologize for the long-winded question, but very much looking forward to the response. No need to apologize, Tim. Um, so, um, yeah, your thoughts, Nick, on on this particular topic? Sure. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. First of all, and um, you know, can we time trend? That's, I think, the question here. Um, you know, can we time trend? Uh, I would, I would possibly even paraphrase the question um, and effectively say: Should you do de deploy more risk or less risk in your trend following program? And I think you know, you and I just have discussed it, or possibly have you know, have shared some comments you know back in the days on on, on this topic. I think there are two extremes here, and you know, the two extremes are: if there is no trend in the market, what do you do? No, if all the signals are too low, but you still have a particular volatility budget to, I know, to deploy, do you optimize on noise? The other extreme is that everything is trending so much. Uh, what should you do? Should you just double the risk or not? Right. I think I think these are kind of the extreme questions, and you know, trying to work backwards. What are the repercussions of us deciding upon reducing or increasing uh, overall risk in those two extreme scenarios? Possibly can hint towards what could be a good indicator. So I'll tell you some of the ideas we're kind of brainstorming uh, and looking at, um, and. 
And I'll, I would basically say that when, I'll start from the, from, from, from the second extreme, uh, that being that all markets have very strong trends. Uh, you know, if all markets have very strong trends, it is very likely that those trends are driven by you know, the principal component, let's put it this way. Uh, so if all rates are kind of uh, you know, moving in tandem, it is more likely a kind of a core duration component driving everything. And therefore, the overall correlation is you know, quite high, uh, you know, but the dispersion uh, across those trends is quite low. So what's the risk here? Well, the risk here is that this dominant component kind of reverts, and then the entire portfolio reverts. Right? And this is very different to saying, hey, this one market has a very strong idiosyncratic move, and now it becomes more of a risk concentration discussion in that market and you know, mitigation potentially of that concentration if we want to taper that signal in the optimization. But if the entire ecosystem experiences very strong trends, it might be a signal, and historical research kind of suggests that this could be the case, that you know, being a bit more nimble with the overall risk no, seems, seems to pay off. Now, again, it's very extreme A scenario, but if I were to think about what is a warning signal here, that warning signal is that post very strong trends across a range of markets, we should be thinking about being more nimble, I would say. Conversely, if the signals are too little, is it worth reducing overall risk? And here's a good debate because reducing risks, it would mean that it will take a bit of time to capture emerging trends. So that's the counter. No, the I guess the um, no the the four statement is that you know of course you're kind of optimizing on noise, um, and it's unclear to me now whether what I'm kind of suggesting is more of a tent shaped type of a vol profile or possibly like a decreasing profile with the, with a signal strength or possibly just acting on the extremes. I think there's something that could or you know it is likely from a statistical perspective to 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 be to be to be valid, and I guess to the choices that can a team made, I think that's closer to your barometer in a way, because that is almost like an estimation of the overall trendiness. I'm less convinced in the sense that risk on risk off uh, is something that I think trend itself is, is acting upon, uh, obviously as a function of its own speed. So if the market is staring into a risk off mode, that's the time that you should possibly not, um, you know, cut your, uh, your overall risk. You know, we have discussions with regards to how we should be looking into trend following in a risk-on mode and whether we should be allowing all those equity moves, those being positive, to be deployed or let other pockets of the portfolio deal with that. But I think that's more of a utility function discussion rather than a timing discussion. And I think the last point I would say, because you know, Tim is mentioning macro variables like inflation and so on, you know, we've done some work at some point looking into how economic regimes and trend following interplay. Uh, and there's a number of papers, I believe, the last couple of years that have been circulated, mainly industry papers, kind of connecting trend following out performance, you know, within with rising or high levels of inflation. But that is very, you know, that is obviously contemporaneous. There's no forecasting ability. And, and I think the reason why I don't necessarily think that macro variables can have a strong impact on timing trend following itself is because the historical performance or the signals themselves suggest that the asset you know, is, you know, is performing well in the whatever regime we're at or possibly not performing in the regime we're at. In other words, there's a regime classification without even us giving it a tag, just purely by looking into the evolution of those, of those signals. You know, if equities are performing well, possibly we're in a rising growth environment. 
you know, if, 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 if bonds are underperforming, possibly we're in a high inflation environment. So somehow there's a subtle regime identification coming straight from the signal itself. And that's why I'm a bit more reluctant thinking about the, you know, the macro regime itself, which, by the way, can go, can go against what uh, you know, always said the other day uh, from AQR talking about you know, macro trend and so on and so forth. But anyway, I'll, I'll leave that on the side. But. Yeah, no, I mean, it is interesting because clearly uh, AQR um, told us about the fact that they use, I think, uh, almost half their signal generation now is what they call economic trend and not just pure price trend. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, we, we, we shouldn't rule any of these things out. I do agree with you. I think macro indicators uh, can be uh, very hard to uh, put into it a trend-following uh, perspective because, you know, once you are able to detect that inflation is high, I mean, it may be peaking, and so you're kind of adjusting it at possibly the, the, the wrong time. Um, I think from my perspective, and, and this is a general comment uh, to, to Tim, is that to some extent, I do understand the urge to try and improve things, and I'm not saying that what you suggested here, Nick, that, that some things you do need to take into account. I mean, of course, you can... You can go old school and say, no, I'm not going to focus on changes volatility. I'm not going to ch- focus on correlations, et cetera, et cetera. And we know for a fact that that still works. I mean, the track records are there. People can go and look at those managers and 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 it's and it's there. I'm not saying it's better. I think they will say it's better. I don't think it is. Uh, that's my view because the, the data doesn't support that. Um, but it could be better five years from now. Who knows? So we have to be open-minded about it. But... In general, whether you use one methodology or the other, you're still dealing with a strategy that tends to deliver about 150 to 200 percent of the S&P 500 returns, with about the same drawdown, uh, so to speak. Now, if you're using an index of CTAs, the drawdowns are a lot lower. But you know, even for a single manager, so to speak, you, you obviously we can have and have had in our long-term track records, we have had you know, similar drawdowns to the S&P. Let's just, let's just face that. So I, I am always curious that that if you can get more returns with about the same drawdown risk, et cetera, et cetera, why we are so focused or fixated about trying to improve upon that. I mean, at some point we should just say, this is fantastic, this is great, because of course the beauty of it, those returns that CTAs generate are completely uncorrelated to equity. So it's actually a very useful return stream, uh, let alone it's better. So, but anyways, I I, I understand the the, the question. Um, I will say my trend barometer was not built <laughs> in any way, shape or form to be used as an indicator. But I will say, even though this was done almost 20 years ago, believe it or not, it has an uncanny way of capturing the, the trendiness of our industry uh, meaning what I look for is kind of where does it finish at the end of the month? And it, it is very, very uh, highly correlated to the fact that if it's outside its neutral zone, uh, then it's either going to be uh, you know a positive month if it's high or a negative month if it's low. In the neutral zone, it's obviously struggling a little bit to detect whether it's an up or down month, but usually that also means that the performance is pretty flat anyway. So now we're going to get to the meat of our conversation, Nick, and that is, of course... To some surprise, I think a couple of papers that actually is somewhat critical about our industry. Um, they are academic papers, so they're way above my pay grade. So I'm glad that I have you as a guide because we're going to be diving into Journal of Financial Markets and two papers 
uh, one from 2016, one from 2020. And if we can get through these two attacks on our industry, if I can put it that way, we may have some positive news towards the end of that uh, segment. So I'm going to be just passing the mic to you, Nick, and then you're going to set the stage for what we're trying to do, do here, or rather what you're trying to do here, and talk us through some of these things, which are, of course, very relevant, because this is some of the critique that I think people sitting on the allocator side may be paying attention to as well. So that's why it is super relevant, even though we prefer to talk about things that support our case. But let's go your way now for a little while. <laughs> I mean, the, the the idea that I had, like, you know, when we said, you know, let's catch up again, um, you know, what should we discuss? I was like, you know, we talk about trend following, we talk about systematic investing, um, you know, we have to be much more holistic and, and I guess, um, you know, radical sometimes in our thought process because, you know, unless we know the challenges, uh, you know, we live in a filter bubble and you know, all of us kind of agree among each other and then, you know, happy days. Um, and I think it's always good to just take a step back and say, okay, listen, that's what we do. That's what we believe in. Uh, but certainly there are challenges there. And I think challenges, we you know, we have to face on a day-to-day -day basis, specifically when, you know, half of the people you had in the show, you know, that's just a number, you know, you might tell me if it's more or less, uh, suggested that, you know, some of the things they dislike hearing or disagree hearing is that, you know, trend following is dead. So, you know, my idea was, hey, there's like two or three academic papers out there uh, that I have seen over the last, like, you know, five, six, seven, seven, ten years probably, um, you know, that make a case against trend following. So how about we discuss that and see what's the other side and possibly just try to connect the dots or possibly try to defend, uh, you know, the, the arguments. You know, before, if we, before even going to the papers, let's just do a very brief summary of what trend following really is. Um, and what trend following really is, is, you know, a range of markets, you look back, you generate a signal of direction, you follow that signal of direction, and you typically scale the exposure by the volatility of the asset, because you typically have assets you know, with 2% volatility, that being you know, a currency or, a, or an interest rate, um, or, or it can be like you know, 40 or 50% volatility like natural gas. That's what a very basic, and I'm, I don't mean to, uh, to play it easy, but a very quick description of how trend following can be designed. So the two papers that I had in mind, uh, you know, one came out actually two years ago, uh, three years ago, yeah, that was 2020. Uh, that's a journal of financial economics. It basically says time series momentum, which is the academic way of saying trend following. And it kind of asks the question, is it there? And the other one, that's journal of financial markets, that's in 2016, basically says time series momentum and volatility scaling. So those two papers try to showcase that the two of the features we're using in portfolio construction are um, either not statistically supported or they act like a cheat. In other words, the first one that says is trend following there suggests that past return does not predict future return. And I'm gonna come back to that point. The second point says, it's not really predictability. You just happen to vol scale stuff and vol scaling helps so much. Like, you know, basic long only risk parity portfolios have performed over the years precisely because they vol scale. So one paper goes against the predictability and the other one goes in favor of vol scaling, that being really the reason not trend following itself, right? So 
these are the two kind of things that I want to kind of put forward and kind of possibly go through some of the findings and, and, and give my opinion. But I'll make a pause here. Anything to say on your side or should I just go and dive deep into it? No, I mean, I think I mean, I mean, think it is very interesting because clearly yeah, it, it touches on some really key parts of what we do, uh, even though, of course, some people uh, don't vault scale, uh, at, well, maybe at entry, but not continuously. Um, but of course, yes, um, people uh, definitely have questioned this fact, uh, whether there is really any predictability from using a time series momentum um, approach. So, yeah, I'm... I'm all ears, Nick. I can't wait for you to uh, unpack these two uh, papers. Okay, let's let's give it a go. Let's start from a predictability perspective, right? Uh, I mean, I'll try to keep it at a level of conversation. I don't want to go deep into the, the econometrics of it, but you know, by all means, you know, I'm pretty sure you're going to share the papers with uh, with the audience, right? So, what this paper says is that you know, if your past return over a number of months is predicting your future return surely you run a regression analysis of your predictive return versus your historical return, and you expect some form of statistical relationship between the two, this kind of beta that we tend to talk about when we talk about regressions. Uh, you know, they have, they use 55 assets across commodities, equities, uh, currents and govies, uh, and they run the regressions. Lo and behold, you know, about 45 out of the 55 assets have not only uh, you know, insignificant betas, but possibly even negative. Not significant, but, you know, a negative point estimate suggests that it's a reversal signal. signal. And then they contrast their work with some uh, kind of earlier work uh, done actually by Oi and, and Moskowitz and Peterson. Um, and they effectively say, you know, that regression that they used back in the days, it's a pull regression, it has a number of econometric issues, you know, I'll spare you the details, they try to fix those issues, and by fixing those issues, they suggest that their evidence is quite solid. That being that there is no time series predictability, past return does not predict future return. And above and beyond that, of course, they say, okay, wait a second. If there's no predictability, why has trend following performed? Which I think is a very fair question to ask. Like, hey, okay, I don't believe that there's any predictability, but something is going wrong here because, hey, if I look at the line, it's actually performing quite well. So then they say, well, you know what? Possibly what is happening here is that there is no beta in this predictability, but there's also an alpha that we don't necessarily talk about because the alpha itself is not necessarily this transition of information from past to the future, but it's just a constant return that you know, keeps on ticking month on month on month on month. So their hypothesis is, Possibly assets that have delivered historically a very positive return, I just benefit from holding them. And those that have historically underperformed, I'm benefiting from historically going short them. So all that we're actually doing is that we're over-biasing our long exposures by over-buying assets that have historically performed and over-selling assets that have historically underperformed. So then they run a strategy whereby they said, okay, if I have an expanding window, I'm looking into the historical performance from, you know, the start of history, whatever quote-unquote history uh, means here, and I'm just going in favor of the positive average historical return every single month of this expanding my information set, and I'm going short you know, when this historical mean is, is, is kind of negative. And you know, they, they, you know, the finish of the paper saying, hey, this form of doing some sort of time series historical return, but not necessarily momentum return, performs very similarly to a trend follower. 
right? So that's that's the whole paper, and I'm going to try to defend or potentially kind of suggest some of the points that I, you know I agree and disagree with. Uh, so to summarize, there's no predictability, but because trend following is performing, it might be that you know assets have statistically strong positive or negative returns over the history, so that is an enough data point to follow, and therefore kind of perform, right? It's 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 a blend between. Uh, if you like econometrics and then you know kind of financial economics, so that's that's the whole paper, right? And they kind of that's why the you know, the title is is it there? Is it really there, or we just happen to be biasing our exposures as a function of the historical performance of the assets, not a short-term predictability? So, I think there are two points that I would want to make here. Point number one is that this serial correlation and this predictability, it's a you know it's a it's it's a subtle concept. Uh, and I'll make an extreme example. If I give you a dollar for the next 30 months, right? Every month, you know, the cash account would go up by a dollar. But statistically, you know, the returns you're experiencing, which are a dollar per month, have zero correlation among each other. Because the way correlations operate is by diminishing, if you like, the variables. I'm not going to go into the specifics of it, but really what you have here is an average return, which is $1 and no uncertainty around it. There's no serial correlation whatsoever. This path of you growing from zero to 30 can be seen as a trend follower, but in reality, there's no predictability per se. So here's an extreme example whereby you still perform, but then there's no predictability whatsoever, right? So that is one point that you know, is gonna take us to the next point, being that there are patterns out there that can be seen as trends but statistically can be seen as no predictability. But I think what's the most important point here, and that's what is actually missing, and that is why I think there's a bit of a disconnect between a very econometric approach and an investment approach, is that expected returns are time varying. And this conditionality in expected returns is very important. And I'm going to bring back the whole crisis alpha, the whole conditional analysis, and the whole performance of trend-following strategies when the markets shift and when micro-volatility rises. Because yes, equities over the longer term have been performing. Yes, if I'm going long equities over the longer term, I will be performing over the longer term. But the ability of going short temporarily in anticipation of a negative trend continuing is going to give that variation of trend-following the convexity element. So I'm pretty sure if we now assess a time series implementation of trend following, as in the actual trend following strategy, versus just allocating on the base of historical long-term returns, both might have over the longer term the same sharp, but when it actually matters and you get the convexity, you're gonna have a significantly different story. And I think the short-term predictability of, or, or correlation, if you like, of returns is the one that is possibly missing from this analysis, which by all means is absolutely very valid, and economically, econometrically sound, but I think it misses the point of we don't just build trend-following strategies for a longer-term sharp ratio. There's way more that goes into it, and that has to do with conditional assessment. And on a conditional assessment basis, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not expecting a long-term long the assets with positive return and long-term short the assets with negative return is 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 going to deliver that. That's that's one point that I want to make with with, with kind of this paper. And by the way. No, I'd be happy to see how this portfolio would have performed last year. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Yeah, me too. Right? Um, you know, this long-term mean being positive, I'm going to buy. Because <laughs> that would be full exactly. on equities and credit and, and bonds, right? Uh, and again, yeah. to that point, it's not anymore, you know, a point-to-point sharp ratio comparison. I think there is much more that goes into it. So yes, possibly over the longer term, the serial correlation might not be statistically strong. But there is this alpha component that somehow we should have to incorporate into the thought process. And secondly, the conditional alpha or the conditional mean, um, which is more about how we go through phases and regimes that make predictability stronger or less strong. And I think that is the point of, uh, I think of debate that I have with, with the result. So I'm not negating the result. I'm just saying that you know, a different perspective is required to connect the academic thought into what we actually experience and what we want to deliver from an investment standpoint. Yeah. How about the vol scaling? So how about the vol scaling? So the other paper um, says something different. It says, you know, it's not really predictability. It basically says, you know, if you do trend following and you vol scale, you get the same performance. If you don't do trend following and you still vol scale. So let's, for the sake of argument, you have S&P, WTI, US Treasuries, and JPY. I'm just making it up. And you go long or short, as time goes by, based on your predictor of performance using trend following. And you put the four together by some form of vol scaling. Whether that is done at inception, whether that is done consecutively to your point, that's less of, of important for the, for the point of discussion. And then they contrast that to holding the same four assets, just vol scaling them, all of them being long. And over the longer term, all they suggest is that, hey, the performance is pretty similar, and actually, if you remove all scaling, what you end up having is statistically insignificant returns between the two. So whether you see a long-only buy-and-hold portfolio with equal weighting scheme for the sake of argument, or a trend-following portfolio with an equal weighting or equal gross exposure in its and every asset, no, they're very, very similar. Right? So that's, that's the point they're making. In other words, you don't really need your signals, you just vol scale and you happen to believe that your signals are good enough and you just do the vol scaling, but that, that is more of a cheat. That, that's their point, right? So what's my, I guess, my counter to it or my defense to it or, or I guess some thoughts around that? The first one is that from an empirical standpoint or from a statistical standpoint or possibly from a research standpoint, you know, you can run equally weighted portfolios of assets. But from an investment standpoint, I cannot just see us putting a dollar on a two-year treasury note and a dollar in natural gas. Because what we're basically doing is a dollar natural gas and a fixed dollar next to it. So from a portfolio perspective, diversification perspective, risk management perspective, you know, we wouldn't be able to deliver a balanced allocation had we not taken into account some form of volatility. So I think, yes, probably something is happening with vol and we're going to get to it. But it's not that it's a fair comparison to say, hey, I'm having all those assets with very different volatility profiles put together on, 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 I guess, on an equal dollar basis. So there's a gap between just let's do it in, a, in, a, in an Excel file or let's actually try and run it and run you know, money with it. So that's the first point that I want to make. There's this disconnection here between, you know, it's not really a reasonable portfolio to hold, right? Yes, I can run my analysis in Excel, but it's not a portfolio I would ever hold because I'm concentrating my risk to equities and commodities. That, that's basically it. That's point number one. Point number two, and I think that's way more subtle, they say 
that if you do vol scaling in a long-only portfolio, you bridge the gap between trend following. What they do not say is that volatility scaling embeds significant amount of momentum in itself when applied to assets that have you know, this negative correlation between volatility innovations and, um, uh, and returns. In other words, you know, if I look into equities, you know, they typically experience drawdowns with contemporaneous spikes in volatility. In other words, if you volatility target an equity exposure, you're going to start reducing the exposure to it when the volatility is going up. So even if you're holding equities, by vol scaling them, what you're acting upon is, is a subtle momentum signal. So what they're kind of doing is they don't translate momentum into a long-only portfolio, but possibly by vol scaling a long-only portfolio, they make it look more like trend following. I'm not sure if kind of that makes sense, but it's not that we simplify predictability and make it look like a long-only portfolio. It is rather making a long-only portfolio embedding some momentum tilts in it. By the way, not all assets experience this behavior of like negative correlation between innovation in vol and performance, as in vol goes up, performance is negative, um, you know, but more, most of the risk on markets do. There are some subtle cases here, you know, specifically rates back in the 70s that interest rates were going up with very low volatility and then vol targeting would be, you know, would be at your expense. But you know, setting that as an aside, volatility scaling has a number of econometric, um, I guess, uh, properties. And I don't want to dive too much, too much into it. But one of the subtle points is that it, it, it specifically brings, um, you know, momentum into the portfolio. Possibly you don't go short, obviously. You just reduce the exposure or increase the exposure following volatility reduction. But this dynamism in the allocation, even for a long-only portfolio, is very similar to, to trend following. What's the difference? the shorting side. So last year, a vol scale portfolio, a risk parity portfolio, a whatever portfolio that you know, follows a risk parity rule, possibly is trying to reduce exposure, but will never go short. So it will still have a very bad year. Connecting my point to the first point I made for the previous paper, that the conditional assessment is very important. So that's, that's kind of a bit of a defense here. It's kind of a bit of a defense. Okay. So, of the three papers that we had in total, uh, do you want to do the th touch on the third one? So, yeah. th no, the, the, the third one, um, the third one is a is a much long, uh, a much older paper. It's from two thousand and six. It was published in Management Science. The reason why I'm bringing it up, it, it's not a trend following paper, uh, and I'm going to spend possibly like a couple of minutes on this one. Um, it's not a trend following paper, but I think it's extremely insightful in the sense that. It is creating econometric conditions for trend following to perform, even if there's no serial correlation in the, in the returns. So the point I made in the beginning, whereby one of the challenges here being that trend following is not statistically strong. In other words, you cannot predict return using past return. That particular paper says, even if return cannot be predicted, as long as volatility can be predicted, and I don't think that anyone disagrees with the fact that volatility is persistent and it clusters through time. And that's the important bit now. You can predict the sign of return, but that is nothing more than trend following. Possibly I cannot foresee what's the magnitude of a return, but it's enough for me to tell you, hey, return is going to be positive, return is going to be negative, go long, go short. 
And I think it's very subtle because the whole, um, you know, the whole paper just talks about the econometrics and the, um, you know, and the modeling uh, implications as to how you can generate those dependencies. Never talks about trend following, but to me it's pretty obvious. It says, hey, you cannot predict return, but if you can predict volatility, then you can regenerate, as they call it, direction of change forecasting. And I think that's crucially important for, for, for trend following. And they also make you know, a few more points along the lines of, even if there is sign predictability, because it's very nonlinear, even basic econometric tests cannot deliver statistically strong results. In other words, there is sign predictability purely driven by the fact that you have volatility predictability, but even basic empirical tests cannot easily document it. Uh, and I think that's a very strong defense to the argument being returns do not predict returns. There is no trend because trend is about the direction of the move more than anything else. And obviously, vol scaling and, 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 and signal scaling you know, comes, comes, comes after that. So that's the reason why I wanted to bring it up, because I think it acts as a, as a defense to the, um, to the first paper I talked about. Yeah, and may, may, maybe I can't speak for for um, for the research team sitting out there in these uh, different uh, firms, but but maybe that is why that so many of the managers, um, at least that we spoke to, have embraced dynamic position sizing because actually they do find that there is information in changes in volatility that needs to be used. Uh, so uh, so yeah, th- th- this is this is awesome, Nick, because. Although these papers are a high level uh, in terms of their, you know, academic nerdiness, if I can put it like that, it it, de- it does actually lead me to something that um, came up this week. So last week, um, I spoke with Andrew uh, on the Systematic Investor Series. Um, he was in New York, I was in Singapore. And then this week, we met halfway. We met in Switzerland for a convenient. coffee. Convenient. So convenient. Very convenient. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that uh, he's obsessed with, and I'm obsessed with as well, is this issue about narrative. Um, and we're, we're constantly uh, thinking about how can we, you know, try and make the narrative more compelling for trend following because we have all this evidence, et cetera, et cetera. And, and Andrew made some excellent points that I wanted to put to you, but actually I'm also going to try to um, weave in what you just uh, talked about uh, a little bit. And I'm kind of, I made some notes about it, but but um, so Andrew was saying that, you know, n- none of CTA managed futures or even trend following has a positive connotation. Value, growth, high yield, quality are all positive. We all think trend following is good, but for the average investor, it sounds like the fools who rush into a trade after the smart guys already made the money. Further, managed futures is to many outsiders a quantitative leveraged long-short derivatives-based black box. And then this is where I actually think it ties into what you said, because I think in one of the papers, uh, some of the people were from AQR. Uh, correct. Yeah. Okay. So what 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 um, what Andrew has observed is something that because the papers obviously uh, came came out some of them kind of mid 2010s and 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 what have you and I don't know exactly when it was that there was this big surge into the AQR uh, trend following portfolios but I think a lot of it was that they did some really clever narrative and positioning of their strategy. Um, 
Anyways, what Andrew um, observes is that, um, and I'm just paraphrasing what we talked about, what AQR and others did was to change the narrative that they were selling similar hard-to-understand strategies by framing the investment process as harvesting risk premium. That sounds a lot safer because to many investors, it implies the excess returns are already there and AQR and others are just harvesting or mining it. The pitch also implied that the strategies would work over decades because according to Backtest, they have worked. Describing the strategies as permanent, uh, uh, the strategy as permanent features of the markets also sounds safer. So I was thinking about when you when you talked about it before, where you said, "Well, there's no real beta, but maybe there's an alpha, and it's already it's always been there, and so on and so forth." And and I was just thinking whether that's actually what Andrew is trying to say that if if you know if you position it as something where well there is this value. It's there, whether we call it alpha, beta, it doesn't really matter, but there's something there. Um, so our job is just to harvest it. I mean, that does sound a little bit easier than when we describe it as we have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. We can be short, we can be long. We're just going to follow the price. And it sounds very uncertain, so to speak, um, instead of saying, well, we're just harvesting or we're just mining this little premium that's out there. So am I on the right track in the sense that there is a little bit of a link here in, 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 in these things? Or, I mean, because, of course, one is a very academic approach to things. And we come from it as practitioners. And so we may not be the most, um, uh, how should I put it? Uh, we may not phrase things as academically, you know, well-sounding as as um, people who come purely from academia. And so we're more maybe direct saying, well, this is what we do and, and so on and so forth. So anyways, over to you, Nick. I would start by saying that I, I don't necessarily agree with the fact that... Um, you know, value and growth, um, you know, have a very positive connotation necessarily, right? Or, or certainly value for the last like five, six years, you know, it was, it was, no, it was a bit of a debate, because, right? No, but you're thinking, of, right, but you're thinking about, well, this is important, Nick, you're thinking about the performance. What Andrew is saying is the concept. value sounds valuable, right? And growth sounds, oh, it's going to go up. This is what he think. I think this is what he means. Okay, I can't okay, speak okay, for him okay, 100. I, I think this is what he means. So, yes. no, in, in in this context, I think the the primary difference, and I think that's what possibly AQR tried to do, um, is that all this value, growth, quality, and so on and so forth. Um, you know, it it has it. It is fundamentally linked to to investing from the perspective of you know there is risk. Uh, there is some risk. I mean, I'm happy to take on that risk. I'm expecting. Uh, to be compensated for it. Uh, so, you know, if loss aversion is important, then we can, you know, give rise to a compensation for holding, you know, certain type of risks. And I think what trend following kind of goes against that premise is that it's primarily based on the fact that, you know, we realize that human beings are not necessarily rational or, or, or there's some sort of slower pace of, of consuming information or possibly we're kind of constrained by some structural dynamics in the market and this ideal, as we tend to call it in academia, kind of um, representative agent uh, that is you know, deciding upon all the investments very rationally and you know, takes into account all the risks uh, and there is no uncertainty around you know, the estimation of risk and the expectation of returns, blah, 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 doesn't necessarily exist, right? But now, 
it's also against the human nature to accept the fact that we are irrationals. And, and, and I think that is possibly the leap of faith uh, that has, in my view, potentially created this narrative, which again, I don't necessarily agree with, but I'm happy to just discuss upon it. Um, now, with that being there, you know, if I were to quote, I think, was it Bruno, I'm just trying to think, or Doug, one of the two, he, you know, he basically said, I just cannot see, I think it was Bruno, uh, I think, you know, I think he said, like, I, I cannot expect that, you know, the way that investors and, 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 and the anchoring bias uh, that has been in human nature for decades, um, you know, it's going to stop. And, and there's no point for that to stop because we can see the reason why it shouldn't stop. But back to the point of, of building a narrative, is it a premium that exists there and we're harvesting it? I, I would say there is a pattern which is purely based on the way investors act and interact with each other. And systematizing the way of harvesting that is certainly going hand in hand with the way we can deliver value and growth and high yield and quality and so on and so forth. So I don't disagree with that. Uh, but equally, I, I, I don't perceive too much of negative connotation with trend following. Um, possibly if you just compare one with the other, yeah, probably, uh, you know, value and growth have more of a positive connotation. Uh, but I don't necessarily believe uh, that trend following is so, uh, you know, badly associated as a, as a, as a, as a term. No, no. No, no, no. That that but that's a, definitely. A, a, AQR and the way I think you know a range of, uh, of 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 industry practitioners have tried to approach the matter, that being via research, education, uh, you know, and evidence. Um, I think it's the right thing to do. But you know, ultimately, we need we owe that to investors. And and also, I think what's what what has been really uh, smart about taking an academic. Uh, approach to this in in the way they described it early on, and this is many years ago, of course, is the fact that I think a lot of the people they were essentially messaging with this, people sitting in you know pension funds, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, they were kind of speaking that language. They were not speaking our language necessarily uh, with breakouts and. And 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 dungeon channels and what have you. I mean, I don't think that is taught uh, in many places, uh, leading to a, a CIO role. So yeah, I think that was very smart. And this is also why I do think narrative matters. And I and I love this uh, quest uh, that that we are on um, um, in terms of of finding potentially a better narrative. Um, we'll see. Anyways, let's round off uh, with just a couple of things. The aspect paper is also talks about the, the the wonderfulness of trend following. Not uh, surprisingly, of course, we, we all believe in that. But there's one thing in particular that I took away from it, which is um, I think they've done a nice job in visualizing it, even though it's something that I think we've certainly highlighted before. And the more time that passes, the more convinced I think this is true. And this is the fact that the decade from around 2009 to 2019, you know, the what, what was described as the CTA winter or the lost decade, et cetera, et cetera. I think a lot of people, as we were heading into 2018, 2019, returns weren't that strong, basically came to the conclusion that this is the new normal. Um, markets have changed. Trend following doesn't work, uh, at, least, at least not as well as it used to do. So we shouldn't expect great profits from this. Of course, 2022 comes along and, and changes that to some extent. 
But what I think is at least my conviction here is that we will look back at this period and realize that that decade was the anomaly. That actually the decades before, whether it's the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, and hopefully the 2020s, will show normal kind of return, distribution, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that period where central banks were in control to a large extent was really the odd one out. That is my conviction. They show something visually in the paper that suggests the same, even though we don't have any, we don't have much future data, of course. And I thought that's really interesting. And I think if people can internalize this, if people end up believing, um, as I do, that that's exactly how um, it, we'll find out that it is, then people should almost completely reverse the way they think about asset allocation and kind of start with the allocation to trend following saying, okay, this is really a core component because just look at how it's done in all of these decades, maybe with the exception of one. Um, and then let's build something around that to um, to build our portfolio uh, from that point. Of course, I'm taking an extreme point here. I'm aware of that. Um, but but anyway, that's just my thoughts from, from, from that, which is hard for you to comment on if you haven't read the paper. <laughs> no, yeah. but I agree because I think it goes back to the point that we had in the first time that you know we we spoke together back in November, uh, following some some work that um, I had done with regards to how that decade uh, shifted and how this fundamental certainty back then that gave rise, if anything, to reversals uh, in asset prices across any asset class um, has significantly shifted. But also, how my conviction was and possibly still is. Um, that this period of, um, you know, excess kind of liquidity and, and issuance of, of cash is not going to return. It, it doesn't feel that it gave uh, as much as it has actually created at the end of the, at the end of it. So, I, I completely agree with the with the statement. Yeah, cool. Well, Nick, this has been fun as usual and incredibly insightful. Um, so I really appreciate that. And to all of you listening today, if you also appreciate all the time and preparation that Nick put into this, why don't you go and leave a rating and review on any of the major podcast platforms? It only takes a few minutes, but it does make it a lot easier for people to find the show uh, and hopefully also join our little tribe here. In terms of questions uh, for next week, where I'm joined by Alan, as usual, uh, you can send them to info at toptradersonplot.com. We're recording a couple of days early, so by all means, please send them over uh, as soon as you uh, have time. And um, with that, I think we're going to call it uh, a day. So we look forward to being back next week. And until then, take care of yourself and take care. I'll be talking. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.